Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I appreciate the opportunity to speak this morning. I do consider it a privilege. It's also a lot of hard work. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is not easy. David Johnstone isn't here today. That's, those are his words. That's a, that's, that's a, a hard book, he said. <laughs> we're, uh, we're actually three weeks into our series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope you're appreciating the work uh, that Josh has been doing. Uh, and I wonder, am I the only one that's amazed at how that man can draw a circle? <laughs> like, I stood there, I'm thinking, he must be tracing it or something. Like, it's perfectly round. If I try to draw a circle, it looks like an egg. But, and I found that's true with most people. But he, he just, and not only did he draw the circle, he drew it again and again and again. And, and it was round every time. And then, and then, he drew a perfectly straight line. I thought, wow, that's a skill in and of itself. Um, <laughs> he is, uh, he is uh, quite amazing. We're so thankful for him, and we're praying for uh, God's blessings on, uh, on them throughout the week. Uh, they'll be back, uh, Lord willing, on Saturday. Correct? Yeah. So uh, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're considering some of life's biggest questions. In fact, we're probably considering the biggest question of all, which is what is the meaning of life? Um, or, in the vernacular, what's the point? This week, today, um, Sunday's the first day of the week, right? Yes, it is. It's going to stay that way, too. Um, <laughs> this week is chapters 5 and 6. So, if you open your Bibles to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes... Chapter 5, do you have a heading there? Do you have a heading in your Bible between chapters 4 and chapter 5 as you're coming into chapter 5? So is there anything there in bold print? What's Fear God. Stand in awe of God. I think that's the New International Version, Stand in awe of God. Uh, at least it's the New International Version 1973, which is the NIV study Bible that I have in my study. Uh, yeah, so now those headings are not inspired, and I trust that you know that. Uh, they're added by modern translation committees, or what have you, the same way as the chapter divisions and uh, 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 verse designations are not part of the original uh, text, but they can be very helpful, right? And uh, although we shouldn't put too much stock in, in those headings, uh, this one is probably quite helpful because... Although the author of Ecclesiastes has been jumping around a lot, he is going somewhere. Ecclesiastes is a book about searching. And if you've ever searched for anything, or if you've ever watched someone search for something, like my wife watches me when I open the door of the fridge, you will know uh, what that looks like. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth. Uh, a lot of up and down, and sometimes when you've lost something and you're looking for it, you might even cover the same ground more than once. You ever do that? Come back to the same place, 
uh, multiple times just in case it was there all along, but you miss it the first time or the second time or the third time. So as we follow the, the author of Ecclesiastes on his search, we get a, a, a sense of some desperation on his part. Um, it shows up because he doesn't just try things, he throws himself into things. He goes all in into all kinds of different things, searching for uh, meaning and for satisfaction. Uh, and then that, that desperation turns and transitions into a sense of uh, resignation at times, uh, cynicism, same old, same old, chapter one, verse nine, same old, same old. And uh, I wanna say this morning uh, and add my voice to Josh's in saying this, that if you are looking to this world and the things of this world for any sense of real hope, you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed. You know, with all the attention uh, received today in the area of grief counseling and trauma counseling, in spite of some of the many helpfuls that ha helpful insights that have been put forth, there is always something missing, and that something is hope. Because the world doesn't know where to find hope. Um, the Sunday before we started this series, uh, I attempted a brief introduction to the Old Testament wisdom literature, and I talked a little bit about uh, literary genres, and I, talked, I mentioned riddles. And you probably have noticed as you've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes, hopefully you have been reading the book of Ecclesiastes, not just showing up on Sundays to hear it preached, because that puts an awful lot of weight on people like me. If you haven't been reading, it's very, very difficult. Um, so I encourage you to be reading. But you probably have noticed by now that the book of Ecclesiastes can sometimes seem like a riddle because life often seems like a riddle. But the author is working toward a resolution. He's back and forth all over the place, it seems at times, but he is going somewhere, and there is a point to all of this. Now, I want to point out this morning that there are a number of concepts and phrases and statements in the book of Ecclesiastes that pop up again and again and again. And that's significant. Repetition is always significant when it comes to understanding any literature or any literary form. They are like clues that lead us to meaning. One of those recurring phrases or concepts, and in this case, it's much more than just a phrase, but one of the thoughts that is recurring throughout the uh, book of Ecclesiastes is the fear of the Lord. So Ecclesiastes chapter five, verses one through three. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. 
Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So we need to take God seriously and we need to be astute when it comes to the things of God. And we need to take our words seriously in fear of God and before God, verses four through seven. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth, let not your mouth, sorry, lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And then verse seven, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Don't shoot the messenger. Fear God. A lackadaisical attitude towards God or towards life is never a good idea. Look at that last sentence again. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Now, jump with me all the way. Josh is probably going to be mad at me for doing this, but jump with me all the way to the very last verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. These are the, these are the last uh, two sentences, if you will, which I guess the word for is a conjunction, so there was a day when I was young, you would never put a period between that, so we could say the last sentence, but no, no matter. It's the last thought. It's the last statement. It's the conclusion, he says, uh, of his whole book. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The concept of the fear of God is a recurring concept in the book of Ecclesiastes, is actually a recurring concept in all of the wisdom literature. You might be familiar with those Proverbs that say that the fear of God is what? The beginning of knowledge says in, in uh, chapter one, I think it is. And then the fear of wisdom, it says as well in another place in, in the book of Proverbs. Um, and of course, it, it begs the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And we talked about, I, talk, I shared a little bit about that a few weeks back. Um, but we need to be thoughtful about answering the question, what does it mean to fear God? And this section of scripture that we're in right now, uh, Ecclesiastes chapters five, um, and six certainly has a contribution to make to our understanding of what it means and what it looks like in our lives to walk in the fear of the Lord. And we can see here in these passages that we're reading, we can see elements of, of what it means to fear God. Uh, it includes acknowledging God first and foremost, but it also includes trusting God and obeying God. Even in the midst of this crazy, broken, confusing life under the sun where along with a lot of good things, there, there are a lot of things that just seem to be senseless. 
even in this crazy broken world with this crazy mix of good and not so good, we need to fear God and keep his commandments. Verses eight and nine says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. In other words, don't be surprised when you see something that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them, but this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. Just a little glimpse, just a little glimpse into how God uses even those unjust things and those uh, uh, undesirable things. Somehow, and only God can do this, God is working out his will, even when we don't understand it. Even all the injustice and oppression we see in our world, somehow God is still at work in it. So don't be surprised when you see senseless stuff because we live in a very broken world. This world is broken. We all have expectations as to how we think the world should should work, but we need to acknowledge this world is, is, is very broken. Verse 10, chapter five, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That reminds me of, uh, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter six, where Paul says to Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says there, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So even believers can get caught up in this, this uh, a craving for, for material wealth. Now, <laughs> Solomon, the author, we believe, of the book of Ecclesiastes, has some pretty interesting credentials when it comes to speaking about wealth. First um, Kings chapter 10 tells us that among other things, Solomon received 666 talents of gold. Um, that that uh, annually. Um, that's an interesting number, isn't it? 666 talents of gold. Now, uh, my footnote there tells me that that is uh, roughly 20 three metric tons. Or about, I think, I think it's, uh, a ton is a thousand kilograms. So 23,000 kilograms, over 40,000 pounds of gold that he received. That's quite an income. Anybody here making that kind of money? We'll go back and do the offering again. No. <laughs> It says, <laughs> it says again in chapter in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 27 listen to this it says that that Solomon the guy who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes that we believe we're pretty sure of that he made silver 
as common in Jerusalem as stone. Now, that probably is a hyperbole, but hyperboles are hyperboles for a reason. And I would encourage you sometime when we're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes to go and read 1 Kings chapter 4 and chapter 10 and read about what it was like in the days of Solomon in Jerusalem. It is absolutely the pinnacle of, of the success of the nation of Israel. Uh, these things I cited here are just, just examples coming out of those passages. But needless to say, Solomon had some interesting credentials when it came to speaking about wealth. In chapter 5 of verse 11, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. <laughs> some of you who have, have uh, children know what that means. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with their eyes? There they are gone. All right, so based on, again, based on uh, 1 Kings 4, the provisions for the king's table, uh, it is estimated from that, those, those lists there that Solomon fed upwards of 14,000 people a day. Now, that would probably include... Uh, Portions for a variety of administrators and civil servants and maybe military rations, but that's a lot of people. Can you imagine watching the provisions come in and watching provisions go out for 14,000 people? And then in, uh, in verse 12, he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Um, Solomon's talking about uh, wealthy people. Uh, Josh uh, has pointed out uh, that a lot of times the author of uh, Ecclesiastes appears uh, perplexed about a lot of life and that there is this, this tension that we see throughout the book, um, contrasting statements, uh, things existing in paradox, if, as it were. And maybe, you, I, I'm sure you must have picked up on this because... Here he says in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of a rich will not let him sleep. But here in, in uh, verse uh, 12, he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. So there's a tension here. Um, and I won't I want for us to think about that, that, that tension a bit because it's important to the book. It's important to our understanding of the book. Let's read the next few verses. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. It says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their own owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Even this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. 
And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Doesn't sound like he's having a good time to me. So there's vanity or futility in material wealth. Or there's vanity in looking to wealth to satisfy the longings that should lead us to worship God. Uh, that verse there, did you know it's verse 15? It says, it says um, as he came from his mother's wombs, he shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing. Uh, that reminds me of, of some uh, thing that Job said. You may be familiar. He, he said something almost identical to that. Naked I have come from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return to the earth. Um, yeah. But there's this, um, there's this tension. And um, I mentioned Paul's words to Timothy about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil and that the craving of that have caused some to wander away from their faith and be pierced through with many pains. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, but you may be familiar that uh, just uh, a few short verses after that, Timothy says, uh, or Paul says to Timothy, to charge the rich, to remind the rich not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And then he says this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So here's the paradox. Money, or wealth, if you will, can be a great curse or a huge blessing. And you and I should be very astute in determining how it is which. I mentioned uh, the recurring concepts, those words, phrases, or concepts or teachings that recur. They're repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The fear of the Lord is one of those concepts. But another one is about enjoying the good things in life as gifts from God's hand. If you're reading carefully, and I, I hope you are, I, it's not an easy read, but if you're reading carefully, you would have uh, seen, uh, hopefully seen that it's, it, it's in chapter two, it's in chapter three, it's in chapter five, where we're at now, it's in chapter eight, it's in chapter nine, and it's in chapter 11. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, even in the midst of all this doom and gloom, oh man, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you work, if you get ahead, it's all gonna be gone anyway, and, and, and you can't enjoy it because, well, what did he say? What's he say here? And moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and with much vexation and sickness and anger. In spite of all of that, there is this, this idea, like a shining light through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, about us enjoying the good things in life as gifts from God's hands. Uh, 
I'm not having a stroke right now. I just forgot, lost my place. <laughs> I don't say that to make fun of people who, because it could happen, right? But uh, no, I lost my place. Um, we need to be very astute in our lives to discerning whether the good things that God gives us in our lives, whether we are receiving them as blessings to be enjoyed and used for his glory, or whether they're just tripping us up. And because, uh, that, because that's a really important lesson uh, to learn, and it's a recurring concept here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if, if you would like help with that, I recommend this uh, booklet. It's called You, Your Money, and Your Church. There's a number of them in the lobby. You could uh, grab one of those on your way out today, and I'm, and I'm confident it would help you with that. But let's move on to verse 18. 18 to 20, chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone who also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now that's a striking contrast, isn't it? Yeah. Striking uh, contrast. The book of Ecclesiastes can seem like a bit of a riddle to us, but a solution is identified. The puzzle is resolved when we lift our eyes beyond the sun and we learn to live our lives in the fear of the Lord who will eventually bring all things to justice and enjoy the good things as good gifts from his hands. Because along with many of the hard things and the traumatic things in life, there are a lot of good things too, right? Family, eating and drinking, work, Rest, laughter, music, beauty, and the list goes on because there's beauty in the brokenness, right? Um, verse 20 says, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Just contrast that to verse 17. If you look back at verse 17, moreover all his days he eats in darkness, in much, much vexation and sickness and anger. So here, there's a tension there, but here's, so here's the thing then. Um, our view of life shapes how we live. And it, in term, it determines how we experience both good things and the not so good things. Philosophers, theologians, and apologists use the term worldview. And while the term worldview might not sound very practical to you, your big picture view of life will very much shape not only how you live, but how happy you are. If you see your life defined by your relationship with God, 
It should affect everything you do and everything you think. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Josh said last Sunday that I was going to talk a little bit about contentment today. Um, we had our, uh, a discussion in our life group uh, last Tuesday night about those of us who tend to be uh, kind of driven. And I discovered that not everybody feels driven. I didn't realize that. But some of us do. I wonder, maybe you do. Be interesting, but I'll refrain from asking you to put up your hand if you feel driven, but do the people around you think maybe that you're driven? Are you driven? What drives you? All of this begs the question, if we're truly meant to enjoy the good things in life here under the sun, how do we do that? Some would say by living for the moment. Solomon, I think, would say by living in the moment, but living in light of eternity. It depends on your view, how you see it all, because God has put eternity in our hearts. Is God the center of your worldview? Have you given him first place in your, in your heart? It will shape everything. How you experience not only enjoy the good things, but how you weather the rough things. Both will be determined by your relationship with the Lord. Chapter six, how are we doing for time? Mm, not too bad. Chapter six, verses one through six. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor uh, so that he lacks nothing. Did I read this already? It sounds an awful lot like chapter five to me. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, does, yet God has not given them power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. That's a shame, isn't it? He says, that's vanity. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Verse three, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many, many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not um, satisfied, with, his, with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Wasn't it Job who said, I wished I had never been born? Yeah. yeah. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over. How many is that? 
2,000 years, even if you live 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good. Do, all, do not all go to the one place. Death lies ahead of all men. I've at times commented and made the comment at funeral services to people, you know, if you lived to be 1,000 years old, life would still seem way too short. But look at verse 3. His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. You see that? So he's belaboring the point. Now, why would Solomon belabor that point? I'll give you two reasons. One, because it's really important. It's a really important point. And two, because we have such a strong tensity tendency or propensity to err on this. Life is filled with good things and not so good things, but anything can become an idol. And when we are walking in this world with our eyes on anything other than God and looking for satisfaction anywhere other than in God, That's what idolatry is. Verse seven. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Verse eight. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? He, again, I mean, he just get done talking about enjoying life and enjoying uh, the benefits of our labor and enjoying uh, uh, material wealth and possessions and the good things. But here's the, the warning that goes with that. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what vantage has the wise man over the fool? What does a poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wanderings of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Another recurring phrase. Striving after the wind or chasing the wind. Uh, he starts in verse 6 of chapter 1 by saying, The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. And then he uses this phrase, chasing the wind or striving after the wind, uh, ten more times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. One of those times is right here in, this, in that verse we just read, uh, and uh, uh, another we just read in chapter 5, verse 16. This idea of, of chasing after the wind. He's talking about, about satisfaction, right? That's what he was talking about in that passage there. You know, where do you look for satisfaction? Where do you go for satisfaction? Do you look in the things of this world for satisfaction? How old is Mick Jagger? I'm thinking 110. <laughs> <Thousand times two. laughs> yeah. Who's Doug? Was that you that said 80? He's 80. He is 80. He just looks 110. Yeah. Yeah, he's looking a little haggard. But some of you know, some of you know not as haggard, haggard as Mick, uh, as um, Chris, uh, Cliff Richard. But anyways, uh, back in 1975... When he was 32 years old, uh, 
Mick Jagger famously said, I'd rather be dead than sing Satisfaction when I'm 45. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> because, because now he's 80 and he's still singing, I can't get no satisfaction. You almost feel like saying, you know, Mick, you know, you need Jesus. Because nothing in this world will satisfy your soul. And the irony is, and it's a great irony, that when we stop looking to the things of this world or the things under the sun to satisfy our souls, and we start looking to the Lord and walking in the fear of the Lord, that's when we not only get the strength to endure some of those hard, crazy things that life throws at us, but the good things actually were freed up to actually enjoy those things for what they were meant for. Because they weren't never meant to satisfy our souls. But they sure are good when you get freed up to enjoy them for what they are. I don't know how many of you have had this experience. I've been a, a, a believer for a, a, a long time now. I don't, yeah, a, a long time. But I, rem, I still remember how food tasted better. Now, I'm partially colorblind, but, so I don't see all the colors, but I developed a whole new appreciation for the beauty of the earth after I came to know Christ. And at the time, it was like, it was just a weird thing. And I didn't really understand it a whole lot, but as I look back, I, 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 I think I, I've come to recognize it more for what it, for what it is. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Let's read the rest of the text, the last three verses of Ecclesiastes chapter six. Whatever has come to be, this is verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and what he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. I'm think, I think, I'm pretty sure he's talking about God there. The more words, the more vanity. Because remember, he started in chapter five saying, when you go in, you know, in the house of the Lord, watch your words, watch what you, watch what you vow, watch what you say. And here he's saying, he's saying here, uh, he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, verse 11. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for the man while he lives? The few days of his vain life. Which, he passes like, which passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? I want to talk to you uh, just briefly about a couple more recurring words and phrases because they're important. He says here in verse 12, for who knows what is good for the man while he lives the few days of his vain life. Now, back on day one, Josh mentioned that Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2, where it says vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. Five times that Hebrew word is used there. Solomon uses the word uh, hebel. Five times in that one verse. But the, the, uh, that's just uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1. He goes on to use that word over and over and over again. In fact, he uses it three, three or four times just in these two sentences right here. And when he says, for who knows what is good for man when he lives a few days of his Hebel life. Um, there, 
the word, you know, it's, it's translated different ways, but, but, it, the, um, but it has that idea of futility. In fact, the, the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul read, that was common in the days of Jesus, uh, usually translates that word, hebel, that Hebrew word hebel, with the Greek word that we translate futility. So if you look, for example, in uh, Romans chapter 8, where it says that God subjected the world to futility because of the fall and the curse of sin, that's that word uh, in the, uh, the word futility is what the Septuagint, the Greek version of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, uh, translates this word, Hebel. Now, the main idea in the word uh, Hebel is Brevity. It's it's literally it's it's uh, you remember Josh saying this, but literally it's like a mist, like a vapor. It's just like a puff of smoke, and the idea here is life is like that. What's that mean? It's fleeting. The main idea of this this of this Hebrew word hebel is that life is brief. It is fleeting. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to find. Everything is passing. The world is passing. You look at life, it's like, here it comes, and it's, there it goes. And if you're starting it up in years at all, you know, you know full well what I'm talking about. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Yeah, you've read it a thousand times. But you might not have known this. Cain's brother, Abel, is the Hebrew word, Abel. And his life was short, and it was cut short. We have to face life as it is in this world. We can't just take it for what we wish it would be. We can't just look at the world with rose-colored glasses on and say, oh, well, this is life. And Solomon doesn't do that. Philosophers have long considered the two biggest problems uh, when it comes to uh, making sense out of life to be the reality of death and the presence of evil. Life is fleeting and it's unfair. And those two ideas permeate the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is fleeting, and it's, and it's often unfair. It certainly was unfair for Adam and Eve's second-born son, wasn't it? So what do you do with that? What do you do with those realities? The reality of death and the presence of evil are acknowledged to be the two biggest problems that exist for humanity, apologetically speaking. And death is like the ultimate evil. Sometimes people say, uh, you just need to accept death as a part of life. Have you heard people say that? You just need to accept death as a part of life. That is not a biblical perspective. Now maybe they mean something a little different than what we take it to mean. But death is not part of life. Death is death. Life is life. 
Paul calls death the last enemy to be destroyed. Death is an enemy. The last enemy that will be destroyed. It'll be swallowed up in victory. How? Through Christ. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection of Jesus and how we can know that that because Jesus rose from the dead, that we too, he's the first fruits of all of those who will rise, who put their trust and faith in Christ. So we look to God for an answer to the problem of death, our deaths. And what about the presence of evil in the world? You can put your rose-colored glasses on and just pretend it's not there, but it is there. It's real. And we are right, listen, we are right to champion justice and fairness in this world. But we also need to recognize that justice will not ultimately be realized until God makes everything right. Because God will judge the world. And he will judge us as believers as well. And that's why we need to take our stand in Christ and our, because he becomes a refuge so that we are not judged for our sin. But we still will be Judge, you, you know those passages in the New Testament that talks about the judgment seat of Christ. It will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So there's coming a day when God is going to make everything right. If you have that hope, if you have the hope that, God, that everything's going to be made right here, in this lifetime, you're going to be disappointed. And I know, I know, I think we all know what it's like to be treated unjustly or unfairly or, or, or all the crap that happens and what it does, you know, how, how, how incredibly painful that, that is. Oftentimes, it's, it's, more, it's, it's more painful than the physical pain. And our hearts cry out for, 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 for justice and fairness. And that's, that's understandable. And we need to, to champion justice and fairness in this world. But we also need to recognize, just like we don't, we don't accept death as a part of life, but we need to accept the reality of death. And we need to champion justice and fairness, but we also need to recognize that justice will not ultimately be realized until God makes everything right. I don't know when the last time you read the book of Revelation was, but it's a good read. Um, So the end of the matter, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The last sentence, the last full sentence in the book of, of Ecclesiastes The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's all about having a relationship with God and walking with God. That's what that's about. And this is the whole duty of man. 
For, for God, look at the last part there, for God will bring every deed in judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the crazy, the crazy unfairness of life, all the stuff that keeps you keeps scratching your heads, all the stuff that all through the whole book of Ecclesiastes is going, ah, I, don't, I don't understand this. This is just all, this is all futility. Yeah, it is. And if you can't see beyond the sun, because that's another recurring phrase, right? In the book of, of Ecclesiastes, it comes up over and over again. If you can't see beyond the sun, if, you, if, if, you, if, God, if God, who is beyond the sunset, is not a part of your worldview and not involved in your life, you're not walking in relationship with him and walking in the fear of the Lord, then you're right. Everything, everything, everything is futile. Everything is Hebel. I like what John Orberg said one time, you know, he said, he said, if that's the case, if this is all there is, if, if this, this is it, then it really doesn't matter. Someday it's not going to matter whether I uh, love my wife and kids or beat them. Because it just doesn't matter. Because without God in your life, nothing matters. But here's the flip side of that. And this is an important part of the book of Ecclesiastes. When you have a relationship with God and, and you're not looking to the things of this world to satisfy your soul, but you, you are walking in the fear of the Lord and you have a relationship with him, then everything matters. That's a bit of a surprise to us because we think, you know, we, we don't recognize that enough. I don't think we realize that enough. Um, 29 times that phrase, under the sun, is used by, by the author. Let me see if I can just say a couple words in closing here and, and um, let you get on with your, your day and your week. Um, uh, to fear God is to be rightly related to God. And that will define our view and shape our lives here under the sun. Because God is not under the sun. So we need to look beyond the sun. The old hymn says beyond the sunset. Because a life that leaves God out is a life that just doesn't matter. But when we acknowledge God and consider a life lived in right relationship with him, then all begins to matter. Um, take um, labor, for example, work. Ecclesiastes. All the work, all the toil, everything, you know, all the achievements. What does it really matter? Life is hard and then you die. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's that resurrection chapter I mentioned earlier, right? The resurrection of Jesus. It changes everything. He says how, you know, how he ends that chapter, how he, he ends that chapter by saying, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Right? See, God gives significance to everything in our lives once we realize 
that our fulfillment and our satisfaction is to be found in him and him alone and in relationship with him. Biblical scholar uh, David Gibson says that the book of Ecclesiastes encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. Biblical scholar Matthew McCullough writes in his book on Ecclesiastes that he entitled Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope. He writes, so long as death remains remote and unreal, Jesus promises will too. But honesty about death brings hope to life. That's the ironic claim at the heart of this book. Cultivating death awareness helps us bring the promises of Jesus from the hazy clouds of some other world into the everyday problems of our world where they belong. The book of Ecclesiastes offers a solution to the riddle of life. Live your life in the fear of the Lord who will bring all things into judgment and enjoy the good things in life as good gifts from his hand. I... Uh, I think of uh, that verse, uh, that passage, where is it, Romans what? Is it Romans 13, where Paul says, uh, talks about vengeance? Help me out here. Is it chapter 13? He talks about vengeance, and he says, vengeance belongs to God. So final justice. What do you do? Like, how, how do you live in this, in this world that sometimes can, I want to use something vernacular to describe it, and I'm not going to do that, but it's, it's, it can be really bad. How do you, how do you live? By looking to the Lord, who someday, do you believe that? That God's going to make it all right? That's something that's really, really important. But what about the good things? Because wealth can be a curse if we're wrongly related to, to it. And the way we get rightly related to the good things is by being rightly related to God. Then we are free to enjoy the good things. Why don't you stand and we'll pray and This is the first day of the week. Did you know that? No, I'm not getting dementia. I know I said that before. <laughs> I had to put some of your minds to rest here because I've been hearing all kinds of interesting things about my age lately. But anyways, um, this is the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. When you woke up this morning, it was not only a new day, it was a new week. How are you going to live it? New yeah, it is. Solomon would say, here's the, the end of the matter. You need to have a relationship with God. You need to learn what it means to fear God and follow in his ways and obey his commandments and live for him.
Because when you do, you will have discovered the meaning of life. And it'll make all the difference in this world. This fallen, broken world. You can know him. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, I thank you for this time. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into the remainder of this day and into the week to come, that we would be mindful of these things. And as we continue or make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, that we would have these things in mind, Lord, so that we can uh, follow Solomon on his search. And, and, and Lord, I'm just conscious of the fact this morning that there may be some here who've never bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. And I think about those things that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus. And I think about how it was through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God made provision for the forgiveness of our sins, not just for our sins, but as the Apostle John says, for the sins of the whole world, for all who and any who would come to fear you, Lord. And I think about how you are going to make everything right, Lord, and, and, and then I think about all of the good things that we have to be thankful for. And, and God, I don't know how many people aren't even thankful because they have nobody to thank because they don't know you. God, I just pray that you would, that you would be speaking to hearts and that people would be bowing their knee to you and bowing their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only one who can save us and give us eternal life. I pray that you would be working faith in the hearts of these people today and in all of our hearts, Lord, that we might be walking with you in the fear of the Lord with gratitude in our hearts for your amazing goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.